Sentire Media. Hello, you. You're listening to A History of Italy. Episode 132, The End of the Visconti, How to Lose a Duchy, 1410-1447. In the last episode, we saw Filippo Maria Visconti take over as the Duke of Milan after the assassination of his brother, Giovanni Maria. We also mentioned that Filippo Maria managed to consolidate his duchy, starting to get back the bits that were breaking off, and he even took advantage of a rare moment of peace with Florence and Venice. He managed to get Sigmund of Luxembourg, King of the Romans, which actually meant King of Germany, to confirm the dukedom, even though it was a bit touch and go there for a while, between getting his duchy confirmed and actually going to war against the king. But we won't go down that road. We'll maybe wait for Dirk over at the History of the Germans to get there, so if you haven't listened to him yet, I strongly suggest you do so. The new duke even managed to get his hands on a seaport for a while, with Genoa once again falling under Milan's influence, thanks to the internal divisions of the city. With this move, the House of Savoy were not at all thrilled about having Milan right on their southern doorstep. This peaceful situation could not last, and trouble started brewing in the Romagna area. In 1422, Giorgio Ordelaffi, Lord of Forlì, died leaving his young son in the care of his wife. Before dying, Ordelaffi had put his son under the protection of Milan, and so, when, at the death of the Lord of Forli, fighting broke out in the city, Milan saw it as an excuse to occupy it. Florence, meanwhile, was getting worried again. It is at this point that our podcast crosses paths with... Well, our podcast, and we get to go back for a moment to the events we covered when we chose to use the mercenary captain Braccio da Montone as an example of the mercenary situation in the 14th and 15th century in episodes 120 to 122. We looked at those events very much from the point of view of Braccio himself, but we now get to see how the rest of the Italian interests were at play. Braccio had always had his eyes on the city of L'Aquila in central Italy, and he finally got the excuse from Joanna II, Queen of Naples, to attack it. You may remember that she had initially designated Louis of Anjou as her heir, but then she had changed her mind and opted for Alphonse of Aragon. The city of L'Aquila blew her a big raspberry and told her that they were sticking with Louis. That is when she sent Braccio to besiege the city, which he did so very willingly because he had wanted to do so for his own purposes anyway. 
Before that, he had also been hired in the past by Florence, Luca, and Siena to resist the expansion of Milan. While all of the besieging was going on, the Queen changed her mind once again and switched back to Louis. Milan and the Pope decided to stick with the Queen and with Louis, while Florence decided to stick with Alphonse and his new captain, Braccio. Now, if you found that confusing, consider that I haven't even told you about all of the rest of the intrigue that was behind this whole event. You are allowed more or less to forget that last bit. Just consider that after a few years of peace, Florence and Milan, although not directly at war, were on different sides of an armed conflict. The other important reason we went back to visit with the downfall of Braccio da Montone is that the first captain sent against him had been Muzio Attendolo Sforza, his old comrade-in-arms from the times in which they had fought together in the company of St. George of Alberigo da Barbiano. Sforza never made it to the battle because he drowned crossing a river on his way and Braccio managed to take L'Aquila. Sforza's way was a very slow one in any case because at the same time he had been negotiating with Braccio himself. But we'll leave that to more in-depth scholarly work as well. We saw that Braccio was then defeated again near L'Aquila by General Giacomo Caldora, but he was not the only man involved. Indeed, fighting by his side was the son of Muzio Attendolo Sforza, Francesco Sforza. Now, you may remember my request not to forget Muzio Attendolo's surname, although you did perhaps have permission to forget the man himself. Now, when it comes to his son, Francesco Sforza, you might want to remember name and surname of this chap. As all of this was going on, things ramped up a notch. After Forlì, the Duke of Milan now took nearby Imola, putting an end to the rule of the Aldovisi family. Seeing how things had played out there, the Manfredi of Faenza thought it might be a good idea to put themselves under the protection of the Visconti. Once again, after 20 years, Florence found Milan standing on their doorstep. In this particular case, we have been talking about the Romagna area, the southeastern part of the modern-day Emilia-Romagna region. The areas of Forlì and Faenza are very close to Florence's northeastern side, just a short trip through the Apennines. The Florentines now begged Venice to get involved and help defend the freedom of Italy. Now, of course, in the minds of the Florentines, freedom meant that they should be the ones expanding as much as possible and subjugating surrounding areas. But let's not get too technical there, shall we? Venice understood the problem and was sympathetic, but they were far too busy in their war against Hungary over the Friuli region to get involved in another front. For now, Florence was on its own. 
They lost a series of battles against the Milanese, one of the most drastic defeats being that of the Battle of Zagonara in July 1424, when Florence sent the Malatesta brothers, Plandolfo and Carlo, ex-Milanese employees, to fight Milan's Angelo della Pergola, and their army was wiped out. After all of the Florentine losses, the Venetians realized that they could no longer sit back and watch Milan take over even more of northern Italy, and so they offered to intervene as peacemakers. When Duke Filippo Maria refused, they declared war in 1426. With Venice entering the conflict, the tide turned almost immediately, with the most serene republic taking the importantly strategic city of Brescia from the duchy. As all of this was happening to Milan south and east, up in the northwest, Duke Amedeo VIII of Savoy decided it was also time to get into the action after sitting on the fence for a while, hoping that no single combatant would get too powerful and threaten him. He decided to intervene against Milan, and so began the first war between Lombardy and Piedmont. This caused Milan to panic and recall all its captains from the Romagna area in the southeast up to the north, leaving those areas unguarded and allowing Venice and Florence to clear up their doorstep once again. Getting ever more prominent among the Milanese captains in this period was the aforementioned Francesco Sforza. Now surrounded, the Duke of Milan realized that the only way out was to sue for peace, and it didn't go too badly since he only had to give up Brescia to Venice. However, when it came time to give up the castles in the area around Brescia, he simply refused. Things continued, and a further loss by Milan to the combined forces of Florence, Venice, and Mantua at the Battle of Maclodio forced Filippo Maria to at least get the Savoy out of the picture, and he was forced to sue for peace, allowing Amadeo to extend his borders to the Ticino River, bringing them closer to the modern-day region of Piedmont as it is. And so things continued for over a decade with battles, shifting alliances, mercenary captains changing sides, and Filippo Maria in particular fluttering around like a very indecisive butterfly, making an alliance with one side and perhaps at the same time with the other, breaking pacts, remaking pacts, intrigue and subterfuge, and so on and so forth. In all of this time, if there was one thing which was becoming alarmingly clear to Florence, it was that the very force they had called in to help them against Milan, Venice, was now becoming the problem for them to be afraid. Indeed, after the acquisition of Brescia, they also ended up getting the city of Bergamo, bringing the borders of the Republic further inland to the Adda River. For the Florentines, in Italian we could say, dalla padella alla brace, out of the frying pan and into the fire. 
So there was poor Duke Filippo Maria getting bruised and battered, and he was also getting strapped for cash. By the 1430s, he was spending about 49,000 ducats for the upkeep of the wars, and considering he had a total income of about 54,000, that did not leave much for the upkeep of the duchy. A good way of getting out of financial trouble was often getting married. Not in current-day Naples, because you have to spend a fortune, but back then it was a good idea. So the Duke thought it would be a good idea to kill two birds with one stone, or as we say in Italian, to kill two pigeons with a fava bean, and marry the daughter of Duke Amadeo of Savoy, Maria. And that's what he did. Although it seems the wedding was never actually consummated, and indeed the couple didn't even live together, with the Duke preferring to live with his mistress instead. Speaking of marriage alliances, it was in 1431 that he started to make promises about his illegitimate daughter's hand in marriage, the daughter being Bianca Maria. That year in particular brought good news and bad news for Milan. The good news was that they had actually won a battle, the bad being that some of his captains were starting to turn against him. It may have been for this reason that the Duke decided to try and win over the loyalty of Francesco Sforza by promising him Bianca's hand in marriage. It would be a while before he would have to deliver on his promise, since Bianca at the time was six years old to Francesco's thirty. Filippo Maria would have plenty of time to promise his daughter's hand to loads of other people, creating quite a bit of confusion when he finally popped his clogs. Things continued along as they had done, with battles, treaties being made, and treaties being broken. At a certain point, in an attempt to strengthen a possible alliance with the House of Savoy, Filippo Maria promised his father-in-law that his wife, Maria, could actually move in with her husband. That she did, and then, a couple of days later, the lovely Duke moved out into another castle and back with his mistress, Agnese del Maino. Visconti managed to extend his flip-flopping to Sigismund, king of Germany, who ended up coming down into Italy thinking he had been invited and thinking he had been invited by and was allied with the Duke of Milan, who never actually showed up to any of the venues the king had been invited to, preferring to send ambassadors in his stead. The king got all the way down to Rome to get crowned as the Holy Roman Emperor, and the Pope, Eugene IV, managed to flip the king over to the Venice and Florence side against Milan. Filippo Maria was understandably very angry about this, and sent Francesco Sforza down to kidnap and punish the Pope, who instead managed to also flip the mercenary captain Francesco Sforza, to the Florence and Venice side. This Eugene must have been quite a charismatic chap. Also, the fact that he offered Francesco his own lands in the Romagna area under the papal authority and made him a Marquis probably helped things along quite a bit as well. Speaking of international affairs, the Duke also managed to get caught up in the succession controversy following the death of Joanna II of Naples. 
You will remember that the succession was contested was contested by both Louis of Anjou and Alphonse of Aragon. Alphonse at the time was besieging the city of Gaeta. It was in the hands of one of Filippo Maria's men, Ottolino Zoppi. Plus, Milan also controlled and was allied with Genoa, who absolutely hated the Aragonese guts since they had been gradually muscled out of the Mediterranean by them. Genoa and Milan sent a fleet that not only managed to score a victory, but also managed to capture the king himself and some of his brothers. At this point, Filippo Maria started fervent negotiations with both the Aragonese and the Anjou, but ended up releasing the king for a nice hefty ransom. This totally enraged the Genoese, who ended up also switching sides to join Florence and Venice. The next round of fighting in the north saw things go pretty badly again for Milan, who managed to save themselves thanks this time to their alliance with Savoy, and the fact that Francesco Sforza, now fighting against his old employer, wasn't doing so with too much enthusiasm, because at the same time he was actually negotiating about his marriage and future dowry. He finally managed to marry the girl, Bianca Maria, who was by now 16 and of marrying age. Sforza made sure he grabbed a hold of her and took her as far away from her father as he possibly could. Also, he continued afterwards to fight against his father-in-law. The War of Lombardy continued, with Milan getting soundly beaten again at the Battle of Anghieri, which I mention because there was a famous painting of the battle, painted by a certain Leonardo da Vinci. Unfortunately, that has been lost to time, but you can get an idea of what it may have looked like thanks to another painting, a copy by Peter Paul Rubens. Also, the battle was written about by another chap called Niccolò Machiavelli. It really seemed now that Milan was done for, and that Venice was poised to take Milan itself. That set alarm bells off in Florence, and the ruler of the Republic at the time intervened with Captain Francesco Sforza to reconcile him with Filippo Maria and this saved Milan from occupation. Incidentally, the ruler of Florence at the time was a certain Cosimo de' Medici. As the 1440s came along, Filippo Maria started to lose his grip, and the fact that he was going blind also didn't help. His slipping hold on power was less of a problem for Milan proper. So, when the Duke finally died in 1447, a fully functioning communal structure popped out from under the superimposed duchy, which was an imperial institution functioning over the communal one. The transition was surprisingly smooth. The citizens, meaning the lawyers, judges, government officials, and prominent members of the professions, all got together and declared the birth of the Republic of Sant'Ambrogio, the patron saint of Milan. Unfortunately for them, 
The situation in the 15th century was no longer that of the communal period of the 12th and 13th, and the idea of being the Duke of Milan appealed to many, and it had been promised to many as well. Having said this, there was only one man who actually had Duke Filippo Maria's only heir, his daughter, Bianca Maria. That man was her husband, Francesco Sforza. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks in particular to all my lovely Patreon supporters, who I'll go back to thanking next time since this episode was a bit of a long one, but we did want to say a goodbye to the Visconti. Once again, thanks very much for listening, and until next time, arrivederci. So, your grace, our dodger, the illustrious ruler of our most serene republic, is rather tired of your flopping and flipping about. Well, I thought you were a maritime republic. So? Well, you know, sea, fish, flip, flopping, get it? The dodger does not take kindly to being made fun of. He could have fooled me. What would the hat know? Nevertheless, we are tired of your changes of alliance and betrayals. The ink on the Treaty of Ferrara was not even dry when you violated it. Well, if you're gonna drag out ancient history... It was last Tuesday! Well, excuse me if I don't remember everything that happened last week. Forget last week. What do you intend to do? Must we reduce Milan to rubble for you to keep in your place? Well, that's a bit rude. And the succession. How many people have you promised that poor daughter of yours to? Well, it's good to leave one's children options. Wait a minute. What? What's that on the table? Are they some kind of secret plan? No. What makes you say that? It has secret plan written on it. Ah, yes. That's just in case I come up with a secret plan. But it says secret plan to ally with the silly Venetians and then ruthlessly betray them. It's not to be taken literally. I think I've seen enough. Oh, you mean that secret plan. It was just to fool those dumb Florentines. Come again? I left it out there so they would see it and think I was plotting against you. Uh, What? But... uh, Now go off and tell my good friend the Dodger that everything is fine. Oh, um, okay, I... uh, Bye now. Phew, that was close. Hope we don't see dead again soon. Eh, uh, my lord, um, we are going to try and invade Venice next Wednesday. Venice? Really? Not Florence?
No, that's next month. Ah, okay. Would you get the next super secret plan sheet? Would you get the next supper? <laughs> yes, supper. What would you like for supper? <laughs> cheese and, and macaroni and cheese. Yes, we please. don't do that in Italy here, so we don't even Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> That's good to know. Then fish, please. Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentiri Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.